Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Lord, may we all this morning Be granted ears to hear with a heart of faith and not doubt your glorious promises summed up in your Son, Jesus Christ. May you, therefore, through this, draw your people and those who aren't yours to you. Draw your people to fall into your arms, into your promises, and experience rejuvenated hope and power for today. I pray. Amen. Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for this, that, that person, this person, yourself, your hopes, your dreams, for years and nothing? And you experience, as a Christian, confusion. You feel beaten down. You know intellectually God's promises. Weeping may go through the evening, but joy comes in the morning. And you wonder where is your joy? Romans 8.28 just continues to flash before you. 
God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purposes. Yet, you go through periods of your life where life itself feels like drudgery and not hope. You cry much more then you rejoice in the presence of God that He delivered me from eternal just desert. The circumstances of your life, your sickness, the sickness of another, no, no sickness, you don't even know what it is, just you constantly battle depression. finances and the pressure they don't stop when oh Lord and you feel abandoned by Him what do we do in the real Christian life what are we to do how are we to wake up the next day and act in order to experience intimacy real joy even though Pain still exists, but relief and joy in the Father because of Christ. I mean, isn't Jesus our Savior? Didn't He purchase our victory? Here is your life to one extent or another. It's in our text, it's mine. It's Zechariah. We often have areas of our life that are shut off to God. Too much pain there. No more hope. I prayed for years and not now. So much so that if God were to send not an angel in disguise, an angel who looks at you and scares the living daylights out of you and says i got a message for you. God's going to bring fulfillment to this promise. That you'll look at Him and you won't believe it. So here's the question this morning as we look at the text. How do we who are saved right now, we who have been born again, who have come to a genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, not perfect faith, but genuine. How do we, in our doubt, in our acts of unbelief, every sin is rooted in unbelief in God's promises to one extent or another. How do we, when that realization hits us, which it's grace when it does, how do we wake up the next day and go on in peace and pursuit of intimacy? with the Lord. I don't mean fake Christianity. I don't mean put a happy face on when you really get away from people and all you want to do is cry. I mean, where do we find this ability to realize in the pain my unbelief and come to repentance and grow and find joy in the end like Zechariah does in this passage. So let's go to the text again. 
Luke chapter 1. Remember the last time we saw the scene that brought about now Zechariah's response. That Here's Zechariah. He, he's a priest. He's one of 18,000, priests. He's in one of 24 divisions. Each division is on duty in Jerusalem, in the temple, two times a year. One week periods. And then the major festivals, they all are there. But that's it. He this day is going to experience something he's never experienced. And I don't mean the angel. Only one time in your life are you allowed to be the one to go in and to offer the incense behind that big door in the temple where you got the candlestick, the bread of the presence, and the altar of incense. And you're lighting it on behalf of the people of Israel because that incense is representing the prayers of Israel. That day, he draws the long straw. It's an intense day. He goes behind. Used to be the curtain. Now the big door in the temple. And thousands of people in the courtyard of the Israelites, they're out there at the hour of offering of prayers, of incense, waiting. Zechariah is in there. And then, bam! A frightening creature of God. An angel appears to him and speaks to him. says, don't be afraid. This is good news. And he tells him that through his wife and through his seed, these two old geezers, whom his wife, when she was 18 and 35, was barren. And now she's going to conceive and that child will be the one prophesied about in Malachi, the forerunner to the Messiah. And so we pick up now this week in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How am I to know this? For because I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How am I to know it? What he's saying is, I heard what you just said. I don't know it to be true. That's why he goes on to call it unbelief. So you pick up in verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news Behold, okay, that's kind of related. Okay, let's get it. He says, no, now look! <laughs> that's what he's saying. Look, Zechariah, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. You want to know why? It's because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. So here's Gabriel. He's sent to give him good news. Now, you can see it, I think, here. Here's Zechariah. And don't miss it. He's a believer. Verse 6 made it clear. He's indwelt by the Spirit. He's been born again. 
And he doubts the Word. But he's stretching. Help me! Help me believe. Give me a sign is essentially what he's saying. How am I going to notice? Give me a how. You think about how strange this is. I can, well, Gabriel didn't say it that way, but this is how the, 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 at least the younger generation would say it today. Hello. I, I hate trying to be the young generation. But, and the, 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 the teenagers hate it too. But I'm an angel. Yeah, but give me a sign. I don't, okay. And God has Gabriel give him a sign. And that sign is also discipline. You won't be able to speak. And most likely, deaf. Pick that up later in, in chapter 1. Because at the birth of John and his circumcision, what's his name? They signed to him. This implication, he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. Now, the scene moves to the outside. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So, see, here's the picture. This happens every day, twice a day. This is most likely in the morning and in the evening. And this is the evening incense offering. And there's thousands of Jews praying while the priest, their representative, offers the incense. And he's supposed to go in there to do that job. They know about how long it takes. And then the priest comes out and pronounces the blessing on the people from numbers. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This is what the priest did. They're waiting. And they're waiting. And He's not coming. Did God kill him? And then He comes out. And he doesn't pronounce the blessing. He just starts doing gyrations or something. And he went home. And we see the response of Elizabeth. How merciful you took away my reproach of barrenness, which it was in that culture, from among people. Now, What sticks out in this text are these words. Because you did not believe. Okay, now watch. Therefore, God's discipline. Feel it. Zechariah here was filled with doubt. He doubted God's promise. And so do every one of us who are genuine 
believers. Feel it. Now, I, you know me. I love distinctions and clarity. What do you mean? What do you mean? Drive you nuts. Okay. Doubt. What do you mean? Well, it can mean different stuff. So I, I want to just first talk about that word before we move on. Doubt. Let me just give you three different ways it could be used. And the first two is not the one that Zechariah was dealing with. And it's not the one we're talking about this morning with believers. Okay. There's the doubt of an unregenerate, non-born-again person who is just filled with themselves. And deep down, what do they call themselves? An atheist, an agnostic, or, or what? They are at enmity and love it. Meaning, with God. When you say doubt, I mean they doubt. Do they believe the gospel? Of course not. And this kind of person, there are numbers of these around, they love to play games. They love to try to unsettle the faith of weak believers. Oh, so you think there's a creator. Of course, cause and effect. How, how could this be here? unless it was caused by something prior to it. Okay, then who caused God? <laughs> okay, They're not even realizing how stupid the argument is. Okay. That's a type of doubter. Well, let me probably say it more clear. They don't really doubt. They know that Jesus did not turn water into wine. They know that the molecules of water don't change into fermented grape juice. They know Jesus did not rise from the dead. Now, see, no, this is the kind of doubt that the psalmist refers to in Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no we don't mean that kind. But secondly, there, there's another kind of doubt. There's the kind of doubt of a person where there's a level of sincerity about the questions. About an unbeliever at this point. A person who has not been regenerated yet. But they're asking questions. And they mean them. They want answers. And they're genuine questions. And they're good questions. About God about this gospel you're telling them about? God saves people. God becomes a human being. He, he takes the wrath of God upon Himself or others. Or, or, or just the problem of evil, which is any thinking human being has wrestled with it. You proclaim a good God? Okay. Is He sovereign? You proclaim a good God who's absolutely sovereign and omnipotent? Then why are there babies dying of cancer? Why have there always been and still is to this day torture right now going on in the world? If He can do anything, and yet He created a world in which there's such evil, how can you call Him good? Or, or maybe, maybe He is good, but He's just not sovereign. He would love to stop it, but he can't. Okay. Th those are good questions. And Christian people, you should ask. The, so there's this person, but with those questions, with the unregenerate, still, deep down, and, and at the bottom of it all, those questions, those doubts are mixed with sin. 
Deep down, with an unregenerate heart, they're in a place, unless God's grace comes, that's, that, that in the answers to the questions they may get, they really don't want to have a king, a lord, over them. They don't want absolute truth from an absolute one. They don't want a moral code. In other words, the core issue of this kind of doubt is a heart issue even more than it is an issue of getting their questions asked. Let me give, let me give you some words from Jesus that are stunning that I think say exactly this. In John chapter 7, verse 17, listen to what he says. If anyone's will is to do God's will, I would love it, God, a Lord, a King over me. If anyone's internal will, that desire that moves you, that's what I want. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he, that person, will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I just speak for myself. It's stunning. That ultimately is a heart issue. Okay, now, thirdly, another kind of doubt. This is the doubt of the regenerate. This is the doubt of truly born again. Or I use different biblical terms. Those who have been called out of darkness into light. Those according to Ephesians 2. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy, raised us up spiritually together with Christ. He changed the core of our desire, in fact, our heart, new birth, okay? Who have, just say it simply, those who have come to genuine saving faith like Zechariah and like us. This is the doubt when we slowly in our ongoing life, harden our heart toward the Lord. Harden our heart, in other words, towards what He says. Uh, that's this book. Yeah. We, we harden it. We, we don't pray and listen to Him in the words of Scripture. And break and spirit work. So, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've gone through periods like this. It's, it's the doubt that grows when, especially in your life, when it, pain, suffering, tragedy, just billows of waves over your life. This is the same doubt that the disciples had when they're in the boat with the Lord Jesus and the storm's brewing. And they start and say, Lord, save us! We're going to die! We're going to drown! And Jesus says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of great doubt? What? Well, okay. He said literally, O you of little faith. Hear this. Then he rose 
It rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. So, every one of us who have actually been born again, have come into genuine saving faith, we have been there right where the disciples were in the boat. And that's where Zechariah was that day in the temple. He should have been dancing. Yes! Awesome news! Instead, too much pain had caused his heart to harden towards God and towards that aspect of his life. That even in the face of a scary, angelic being, I don't believe it. See, this is the reality of the Christian life here that we're going to see and we're seeing in Zechariah. That is, every Christian struggles with doubt. Let's call it Christian doubt. Again, it's Luke sets it up. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. They were living in all the commandments of the Lord. And we saw it doesn't mean they were sinless. It means their heart was changed from the way they came into the world in original sin. It means that He changed them. He, he caused regeneration to come alive. And real faith was there. And they walked struggling with the Lord. Their eyes were opened. That's the case here. And now this believer doesn't believe. Welcome to the real ongoing battle of the Christian life. This example is throughout Scripture. Sarah, she's a woman of faith. Just, just open up Hebrews 11 and look at these people. Okay, look at all those signs of faith. Why don't you study each one and also look at Sarah laughing at the promise that she's going to have a baby in unbelief. Look at Abraham, the great example of our faith, who out of fear two times could not trust the Lord, but had to lie about Sarah, his wife, to protect his life. Look at this. I think most born again, most people who have come to flee to Christ, one of the most precious souls of our example, King David. In the words of his prayers. And this guy's genuine. This guy feels. When he feels deserted by God, he prays it. And we thank God. Because sometimes we're nervous. And God says, I'm going to put that in there so you can pray it along with him. Okay. David. Do I need to mention some of his grievous sins? Grievous lack of trusting in the promises of God. This baby that the angel Gabriel prophesied about is going to grow up and is John the Baptist. This is a godly man. This is a man who has the Spirit. And he's thrown in prison. And he sits there. And he sits. And he's starting to rot. And he's starting to say to his disciples as they feed him some more food, go Go, go to Jesus. 
Ask him. Are you the one or not? Why am I here? Just kind of feel it underneath. And Jesus says to his disciples, Go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Make sure you tell John. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's stunning. What do you mean, Jesus? I am the King. I am the Son of David. I am the Son of Man in Daniel. I'm the one who's going to come in the clouds of heaven. I'm the one who's going to bring judgment day. I'm the one who's going to open the scrolls. I am the one who's going to vindicate you, John. Though you're going to sit in prison until they cut your head off. Do not be offended. It me. The doubt that we Christians wrestle with is at its core a heart issue. It's not I need more evidence issue. Sometimes people say, if only, God, if only you can send someone to me to give me a word that I know is miraculous. A personal word. Or if only I could see a miracle that, that I know, I'm convinced, that cannot happen any other way than that if there's a God. Then I would believe. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Okay, again, Zechariah was confronted by a real, frightening angel. And he didn't believe. Luke is going to go on in his Gospel to tell about the time Jesus told a story about a rich man and a poor beggar Lazarus at his gate during this mortal life. And then they both died. And Lazarus, a righteous person, had it made in Abraham's bosom. And the rich, wicked, unrepentant, evil man was in torment. Abraham, please send Lazarus over to dip his finger in water and touch my tongue. It cannot happen here. Too late. I got brothers who are still alive. They haven't died yet. Send someone. Send Lazarus back and warn them. I pick up in chapter 16 of Luke, verses 19 to 31. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Okay, stop. They have the written scripture. They have. Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
No, the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Doubt at its core is not an issue of not enough evidence. It is a heart issue. This is the battle of the Christian life. It is our flesh, as Paul pits the flesh versus the spirit of born-again people. In other words, the spirit dwells within. Now we're schizophrenic. Now we struggle, Romans chapter 7, and our flesh overtakes our desires. And no matter how we try to color it at core, when, what, excuse me, at core, when my wife gets the privilege to see my daily sin, every one of them is rooted in a heart issue of unbelief in God's promises at that very moment. Remember, the last time we were together over Luke, I contended that Luke is purposefully picking and choosing what he's putting here. You gotta, this is the only gospel that has this story. And the way he structures the first two chapters, he is purposefully for Theophilus and the Gentiles and to us, he's purposefully contrasting John the Baptist's birth with the Savior's birth, with the Messiah's birth, Jesus' birth. And he's purposefully contrasting Zechariah's response to the angel and Mary's response. And he's saying, there's a wrong way to respond, Theophilus, to the promises of God, to the Gospel, to the Word of the Lord. There's a wrong way. And there's a right way. And Zechariah's is the wrong way. How am I to know what you're saying to me is true? The answer to that is this. Because God said it. That's why the angel responds the way he does. I'm Gabriel. I am an angelic being who specially stands in the presence of God as His messenger with His Word to you. That's why. Okay. But Zechariah said, Mr. Angel, do something to make me know. Mary didn't respond that way. Mary didn't say, how am I to... No! She responded. Wow. <laughs> okay. How is that to happen? It's different. How shall this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, wow. Okay. <laughs> Tell me. Without human semen? That's what she's asking. Zechariah saying, give me a sign. Mary saying, give me an explanation here. 
So then, having said that, having seen the text, what lessons should we now draw from this? There are two. Over the next 20 minutes is like slowly close. From this, we now, today, this morning, for the rest of the week, and the rest of your life, should draw these two lessons. God's prophetic word laid out in Scripture, His truths and His promises are outside of you and He will bring them to pass. And therefore, stand on them. There you hope. The next thing we're going to learn is that in that life, that's called sanctification. The way, that's the Bible term. That process of holiness. The Christian life from new birth, whether at 14, at 12, at 87, until you hit the grave. It is the life of a believer with that struggle of standing on the Word and trusting God's promises. The second lesson is this. God's providence is there. As a father disciplines his children to bring you home. Let's look at the first first. God is sovereign, we see in this text. And He will bring about His prophetic word. Okay, I want to make this distinction. Okay, we're saying, okay, we had a fight, doubt, what they called unbelief, and trust in the promises of God. But, get it, before faith, comes something else. It's called the object of your faith. That is God, who is indistinguishable in this sense from His Word. Okay. God has spoken in Holy Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. He has laid out the way and what and to the extent He wanted to reveal Himself culminating in the good news of the Gospel of Christ with untold thousands of promises. And He will bring them, every one of them, to pass in His time. Trust Him. Zechariah, your unbelief? Okay. I'm going to providentially come in here and cause you to be deaf and dumb until the day everything I spoke to you is fulfilled. You're wavering in unbelief, Zechariah, or anyone today will not hinder God from bringing about His promises. Oh, and it feels like it. Because that day in the temple was the fulfillment of a prophecy that happened 430 years earlier in Malachi. Most of the time we go three months when we give up. And Israel's going 430 years. And now, God says, this is what I'm going to do. And He doesn't need you. 
to do it. Zechariah, your unbelief? I'm going to bring it to pass. Okay, Luke is not just writing history. For history, say, oh, one darn thing after the other. Very selective. And he's thematic. And he's purposeful. Theophilus. And all that you've begun to learn and stuff too. And all that stuff about the gospel. Hey, there's a lesson here. Believe believe his gospel believe the old testament where jesus is all over it he's going to bring it to pass the lesson is we are to fall daily into the arms of the lord repent cast our cares on him for he cares for us. That's a promise. Unlike some false doctrines today, God's ability to move and to act and to bring things to pass is not dependent upon your faith. He is sovereign. That's our hope. Trust Him. Which brings us to that second thing we see in this text. Because that is the Christian life. The Christian life does not change the amount of pain and suffering that is the lot of every human being. It just changes it. The Christian life is not a life without sinning, but it is a life that is utterly different from before and it doesn't live in the same patterns of sinning. The Christian life has given us the taste of the joy who is the eternal God. You ever wonder why you are able, never perfectly, never wholly, completely, but you're able to any extent enjoy God? As a, a sinner, as a person who was born in this world with no ability to believe, no ability to love Him, no ability to trust Him, but now you do? Because God has imparted God, the Holy Spirit, to you. And that's what you taste. And it's only a down payment. And, and it, it's very different now than the culmination of the Gospel for which we still wait in the second coming when all sin will be wiped away. When you will not be able to not fully delight in Him anymore. And that's true freedom. But now, God has sovereignly left you in me in this mortal body and sin nature dwelling with us. So, that's Christian life. And therefore, know this truth. Your sovereign, loving, heavenly Father disciplines, comma, His children. All of them. Because He loves you.
Zechariah's unbelief in that temple that day is a lot like Peter's denial that he even knew Jesus. And after the third time, I don't, I don't know him! Jesus caught his eye. But remember, Jesus said to him weeks before, Satan has asked to destroy you. But I have prayed for you. Therefore, when you repent, when you return, strengthen your brothers. His hope was not in him. It was in Jesus whom he saw across the courtyard. God in the temple has Gabriel strike Zechariah death and dumb. It was a loving father teaching his child Zechariah, training him. He was learning a lesson that he would never forget. And that spanking is what grows Zechariah's doubt into faith. And it grows your and my doubt into faith if we're his. So you either turn there or listen. I'm going to just slowly let the Holy Spirit's Word through the writer to the Hebrews say it. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 5 to 8. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord loves the one, excuse me, for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm nervous about trying to get over what I'm going to try to get over in the next ten minutes, because it can be complex. Can try. Because I could end the sermon right there, but I want to try to dig a foundation that's a little deeper and, and wrestle with it and come back up to, to this. A loving Father, sovereign, disciplines with His providence, which means nothing outside His will happens to you. And he's causing all things to work together for good if you're His. If you love Him, you're true. He is. And this is happening 
in the context of the battle of faith. As the Hebrew writer says in chapter 3, this is it. And you should, if you don't recognize yourself here, scary, but recognize yourself here. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, a pattern of life, of unbelief, of doubt, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day as long as it's still called the day. But the evidence that you're genuine and true is that we persevere to the end, he says in verse 4. So there's that life. Okay, let, let's figure this out then. Life, I know, I sin, I have a prayer life. Let's get some theology straight. And then feel a little tension with it and see if we can put it back together. At the very moment of saving faith, it, it, it began sometimes. Some of us know pretty much when it happened. Others of us, we're just not sure. When, when I was at a conference last week, the, the great New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he says, one thing I'm going to ask, Lord, when was I regenerated? Was it when I was eight or when I was in college? He's not sure. It doesn't matter. Do you believe? Then you were. But whenever that happened, and it happened at a moment, true new birth, at that moment, saving faith came alive, and at that moment, you were justified by that faith. You were, in other words, it means this, the perfect human life of Jesus Christ, as opposed to our father Adam. That perfect life of Jesus Christ was imputed to you. Imputed doesn't mean infused. It means that in God's legal courtroom of justice, His life, Jesus' life, is what cloaks you and you're judged by. And that's it. Perfect, positive righteousness. And what happened on the cross was that your sins were imputed, put to the account of Christ who did not sin. And there, God's full, holy, just, righteous wrath was poured out on Jesus. Fully. Penalty was done. And therefore, God no longer holds any sin judiciously against you. Never will. Okay? But on the other hand, here's our life. You come to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and we read, if we, he's talking to believers here, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. Wait a minute. Feel attention? Are they forgiven or are they not forgiven? Okay. Okay. 
what John's doing here, that way of life, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, that life is the evidence of genuine new birth. It's the evidence of genuine union with Jesus. Look how he said it two verses early in 1 John 1. But if we live by walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay. Okay. Let me put it this way then. You're going to commit, if you're alive next week, you will sin. Are those sins forgiven yet or not? Does anyone feel this struggle? Are they forgiven now or not? If so, then why confess them in order to be cleansed from them? But didn't Jesus already take them all away? Now, let me just stop for a moment. Some of us in this church from years past, no other believers personally that got caught up into a horrific teaching. That saw that problem a little bit and totally butchered the Scripture and it really damaged a lot of people. Yes, grace means I have nothing whatsoever to offer to my salvation. I can do nothing. I can't live better. I can't believe better in order to be cleansed. Jesus took my sin and freely gave eternal grace to me. Let me say something about that. It's absolutely true. But what some of these teachers did, and I listened to them, they shut the Bible and then drew all kinds of logical conclusions from that that are unbiblical. To the extent where, in this little group, they would teach it's wrong to ever go on confessing your sins as a Christian. They would butcher First John 1, 9. Why would you confess your sins if He's already forgiven them in the cross and you've been justified? And they would say if you confess Him, that's a sign of unbelief that that's actually happened. Don't take biblical truth, doctrines, close the Bible, and then philosophize about the conclusions you think should come out of that. Whether it's justification, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of the resurrection, just go on and on and on. Careful. So, but, they were feeling a problem, we should feel the problem. Here's the question. Do we go on confessing our sins in order to be cleansed? Well, the text says you do. Okay, so now the question is, when is it that we obtain forgiveness? Let me, let me cloak it this way. When is it in our walk, our relationship with the Father, our relationship with the Lord Jesus, as we sin, as our hard heart just loses it, and there's tons of promises that we just did not trust in. You can just see them all over. <laughs> okay, we sinned. When is that offense washed away so that we're on good relational terms with the Father. When is the sin cleansed? 
I told you I'm going to struggle with trying to get this over. It depends on what you mean. If we mean, when was forgiveness of all of our sins purchased for us? That's one question. Is that what we mean? Or do we mean when it was applied to each transgression in our ongoing life in relationship with the Father? Well, the first is easy. Every, every sin and its forgiveness and its being totally paid for was purchased long before you were ever born. It was purchased on the cross without any of our help by the Lord Jesus Christ. Period! You add nothing to it. Nothing. Nothing. In the Christian life, I just want to make a distinction. Let me go back in. When it comes to God's holy, righteous wrath, judiciously, His justice must be upheld. That's what was going on in the cross. It's either going to be upheld for you in the cross, or you'll stand on judgment day. Apart from it. If you're a believer, all of your sins have been washed away. But, in this life of sanctification and walk, as you sin, God's not a robot or a theology. He is the eternal, existent, triune God with whom He has brought you in to share in His holiness as a creature through His Son. And thus, if we mean this way, when are those sins cleansed? The answer is constantly, as that is being applied to the justified person, as often as we need it, as often as we need renewal and repentance in life. Is it making some sense? I'll just, I want to, because now we're going to jump to this. Because this raises the next question then. And we see it in our text, I think. That displeasure that God has toward all sin. And I'm just going to trust me. When Joe sins, God is displeased with that. When Zechariah sins, God is displeased with that. Does he? Do you believe? How do we work with this? Reality. You can just say, no, God doesn't feel that. And, and look, I'm going to... Pr- justification is such a extremely important, central to the gospel, and to understand it, don't draw this conclusion. 
that God is not able to feel displeasure towards you in your sin for which you need cleansing. See, sometimes we read the angel Gabriel wrong. I think, this is my interpretation. And you get even sometimes dramatic stuff on MP3 and the angel sounds whatever they think angelic is. Oh, behold now, you're going to be deaf and dumb. No. Look! This unbelief is the reason why you're going to be deaf and dumb for the next nine months. God is more complex than we think. Can God feel displeasure? Let me just give you one other text. Can the Lord Jesus resurrected and ascended, feel displeasure at His people. Well, Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Jesus says this, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and Repent and do the works you did at first. Also written to the church, the Lord is against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. This stuff's all over through Scripture. Now, let me just, if, if you're following me, at least for argument's sake, buy what I'm saying at this point. But only, you know, don't buy it unless you see it in Scripture. But, if in our walk, God has the capacity to feel displeasure, what kind of displeasure is this? This is important. I'm saying He does feel displeasure with Joe. And the kind of displeasure He feels is not ever the kind that of anger that you ought to feel towards that low life that shot that cop down in the L.A. area last week in the park. It's not the kind of anger you should feel at the atrocities of Saddam Hussein and the way he would brutally torture in front of family members, thousands of people. And, and part of you justly wants to scream out, execute him. That's not the kind of displeasure. He feels if you're in Christ. Instead, it's the kind of displeasure that parents feel at the sin of the children, at the, the, the grief we may feel, the irritation, the correction we feel we need to bring to them because of what we see. God's displeasure of sin towards His children is Discipline, it is never, ever judicial wrath. That's been satisfied in Jesus once and for all. I'm going to turn to Thomas Watson because I think he says it well. I'm going to read it slowly. I think he's helpful here. He wrote 350 years ago saying this. Though a child of God, after pardon... Come, become a Christian, okay? You're a child of God. After pardon, you, a child of God may incur God's fatherly displeasure 
Yet, His judicial wrath is removed. Though He may lay on the rod or the belt, yet He has taken away the curse. Corrections may befall the saints, but not destruction. So, God is more complex than we. God has the capacity to see the sin of genuine believers as grief producing to Him. And at the same time, to see on that different level that all of those grief producing sins are absolutely pardoned in Jesus, His Son. This is the great news of the Gospel. This is the great news of the new covenant. Right now in this world, there are untold hundreds of millions of people that are clueless to the reality that God's eternal, perfect, holy, judicial wrath hangs over their head right now. That's not what he has toward any of his children now. But instead, toward us, is his fatherly, in our sin, in our unrepentant, unconfessed sin, is fatherly displeasure toward unconfessed sin. And so you hear First John 1, 9, Oh, praise God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. Well, that's a huge thing I can't go into, but boy, is He just. He cannot not forgive you, believer, because He would be sinning, and He wouldn't do that. And He loves the cross and His Son and His purchase so much that it's His joy to constantly cleanse you. That's our hope. That's why He forgives you, not just for your sake, but John goes on in chapter 2 and says, He forgives our sins for His sake. That's strange. Not when you get your Bible theology right. It's His joy to forgive you. And so, what's the difference? God's, He is wrathful. And it's hanging over people. And they're on the precipice of death. And so, they're, they're plopping in and waiting eternal judgment. Every every second right now. And then there are millions of us whom He has plucked out of that mercifully, undeservedly, and brought us to His Son and brought us into union with Him. And we're cloaked in Him now. And the difference, therefore, is what? Is that we have nothing but God's perfect, eternal love and good pleasure that He has towards His Son, Jesus. He has towards everyone whom Jesus purchased. We have it because of our union with Him in the new covenant. That's what Jesus meant. This is the blood of the new covenant. What new covenant? It's prophesied in the Old Testament. What He is saying to every one of you is blood bought by Jesus Christ. Every one of you, therefore, who is in the new covenant with Almighty God, hear it 
Hear this. In everything you heard now, hear this. The promise of the new covenant. Now watch it. This promise does not require any of your help. The promise of the covenant is that God will never, ever turn away from doing you good. And He will never, ever let us in this struggle, in this battle that we've been discussing for the last 60 minutes. He will never, ever turn away from us in this, allowing us to ever turn away from Him in this process of sanctification. Listen to the promise of the new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah 600 years before Jesus. This is what Jesus came to purchase. Hear it. God speaking through him. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. What is this promise? This pact? This covenant? Here it is. That I, God, will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. Since our forgiveness of sins, which is always connected to unbelief, to doubt, to one extent or another, since that forgiveness of sins has been absolutely, eternally secured by Jesus on the cross in His life, His death, and His resurrection. Therefore, hear the promise, Zechariah, or believer today, God is absolutely, omnipotently, and sovereignly committed to bring Zechariah and us back to confession and repentance again and again and again and again until that day. And so, Zechariah's chastisement, the providence of God, the guy can't hear. The guy can't speak. Name 10,000 experiences in your life. The providence of God is speaking to him. But here's the purpose in the text. Seems appropriate that we shut your mouth, Zechariah. Because you should have been praising God. But I tell you what, for nine months you're not going to be able to speak. Until you open your mouth in front of a whole bunch of people and at John's circumcision and praise God. Which we see in verse 63 and 64. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed And he spoke, blessing God. The way I started, 
What do you do when it feels like your life is crumbling? What do you do with the doctor's report or the doctor's report of a loved one or financial reversal where you just confuse you don't know why? You hear the providence of God, Christian, saying, check your heart and no matter what you're in, Flee to Him. Trust Him. I can see no other possibility than after that experience and that nine months of deafness and muteness, Zechariah is going down to the synagogue to spend time in the scrolls. He's rereading them. And he's seen Malachi, and he's seen the prophecies in Isaiah, and he's feeling himself and in amazement and in repentance, so that when he can speak that day, he's blessing God. Know this in the Father's discipline or providence. I'm not going to answer the question and I don't know how to answer this question for any of our lives. Is this particularly discipline because of sin or not? don't know. But in one sense, the only thing that matters is trust Him in it. Trust the Gospel. Fill yourself with the truth of the Gospel and its promises in the midst of your tears and your crying and bless. So, Father, I pray that to the extent anything that I have said was not said rightly or was not heard rightly, that you would not cause any to go off into error. But that overall we will see, Father, the goodness of the promises that were purchased by Jesus for us, most of which reside in the resurrection, so that we will endure for your sake much during this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to